Hi, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to another in our podcast series that we label Faculty in Research. This week, we've persuaded Dr. Kathleen McNamara, a professor of government and foreign service at Georgetown, to join us, and I'm thrilled about that. Her work focuses on markets, culture, and politics in the European Union and the United States. Here at Georgetown, Professor McNamara co-directs, along with Professor Abe Newman, the Global Political Economy Project that's funded by the Open Society Foundation. And that project seeks to reinvent political economy scholarship around the politics of globalization. In addition to that current work, in the past she served as director of the Mortaris Center for International Studies, one of our important centers on campus, and also vice dean for faculty and graduate affairs uh, in the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown. She's also taught at Princeton and Sciences Po in, in Paris. So Kate, I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to have you with us. And, and maybe we ought to start with a little, just about your own personal background. How did, how did everything begin in political economy, political science? for you? Was it a late breaking interest? Was it a from birth interest? Or how did you get to, to where you are now? Well, I'm really delighted to be here um, and have the chance to talk a little bit about my, my research and my work. So I would say actually it was a little bit of a late breaking interest, but I think it really built upon kind of my childhood and my experience growing up. So let me explain. I actually was a geography major as an undergrad. Went to McGill University, majored in geography, uh, wrote a honors thesis about uh, the redevelopment of uh, Stamford, Connecticut, looking at sort of urban geography and, and urban planning. But I realized that my work and my position at the School of Foreign Service in the Department of Government seems like an inevitable, inevitable conclusion, in fact, to upbringing, which was as a foreign service brat. My father was a diplomat. I was born in El Salvador. We lived in the Philippines, went to high school in Geneva, Switzerland, to the international school there, and then off to Canada. So I think, you know, a childhood on four continents, uh, a childhood with somebody who ends up being a trade negotiator in Geneva, um, really was sort of such a great upbringing for then eventually becoming somebody who thinks all day long about international politics and particularly European politics with my background living in Europe. I also think substantively growing up in so many different places, in so many different cultures, sort of led me to appreciate um, something that's been really important for my academic work, which is that I'm continually fascinated by how people construct meaning in such different ways, in different places on the globe, in different you know, periods of time and history, and how important culture really is and sort of acting as a screen between what we see in the world, how we think about it, and then very consequentially, how politics unfolds, how people's political preferences are formed, and so on. So even though it was quite a zigzaggy uh, sort of life that took me to being a professor, and we can talk a little bit more about the things, the non-academic jobs I held before I went to grad school, I think it all sort of has come together in a really terrific way. That's fascinating. Uh, and it's interesting in, 
actually talking to many of our colleagues about how when you reconstruct your past, you, you can find a pattern that ends up where you are, but when you're living the life that isn't at all clear at that moment. So it's fascinating. So, so tell us about this academic start and graduate school and in, in between time. So how did you end up in graduate school? Well, exactly. Since I'd done my undergraduate degree in geography and I had really enjoyed it and really enjoyed the experience of doing my own independent research with the honors thesis, I did think about doing a PhD in geography and I actually did get a, an offer to do that. But it was clear to me that geography was not a very well-developed discipline in the United States. It's much more of a sort of commonwealth, you know, sort of colonial past kind of discipline. And so I decided to pursue my love of sort of urban geography, urban planning, worked in a nonprofit in New York City that worked on urban planning in New York, and then went to Capitol Hill and actually worked for a member of Congress from Connecticut, which is where my family was living at the time, and worked on sort of transportation and, and sort of, you know, very practical things, but really loved being on Capitol Hill and sort of, you know, the pace of things and the politics and everything like that. But eventually I felt like I literally felt like I was sort of getting stupider every day that I wasn't in grad school. That sort of, you know, working for a congressperson, you sort of have to come up with answers to questions and you sort of, if you have two hours to do an analysis, that's a great luxury, right? Instead of having, you know, two years, right? Or something like that. And so I wanted to go back to grad school and I decided to go to the school uh, to an international relations MA because I thought, you know, I'm going to go off and be in the foreign service. So I'm going to do some sort of practical thing. So I went to SEPA at Columbia School of Public and International Affairs and got a two-year MA. But while I was there, I took a couple PhD classes. Somehow I got sort of snuck into them in political science. And they were particularly political economy classes. And I just, it's like, it sort of lit a fire underneath me. I found this sort of, this clash between, as you describe it, the sort of politics and markets, these two spheres, which have their own logics at work and yet intertwine, you know, in such important ways and with such sort of tensions in many instances. And I just found that fascinating. So went ahead and applied to the Columbia PhD program, got accepted and off I went to do my PhD in political science uh, with an emphasis on international political economy. So, so give me a sense of, the, the mentoring you got as a, as a PhD student, was that a pleasant experience for you? Was it nurturing? <laughs> well, the years that I was at Columbia doing my political science degree were actually sort of um, world renowned for their Darwinian characteristics. Then in fact, I was fortunate I came in with complete funding, but interestingly at that time, they let in a lot of people without funding. And then it was this sort of dog eat dog where you tried to get funding in your second year and those that didn't get funding would sort of fade away. And those that did get funding, which literally was, you know, sort of 40 people would be trying, you know, vying for sort of five slots or something made it very, very competitive. And to be honest, that was hard, but I would say it got me ready for the rigors of the academy and the academic job market and everything else. But it's sort of early on, I realized that I needed to have a sense of doing things for my own reasons and because of my love of figuring things out. And that I had a terrific mentor for my PhD, actually, Helen Milner, who was a very young, she was actually an assistant professor at the time. I look back on it now and think, my God, why was I like hooking my star to somebody who was quite junior, but she was an extraordinary person 
um, really remarkably powerful female role model. And actually my undergraduate honors thesis advisor was also a woman. And I think it's no accident, right? As the Marxists used to say that I really was able to see these really powerful women just completely tear up the place and set the place on fire and do amazing work. And I think that helped me, you know, unconsciously be able to imagine that I could do that too, right? So I think Columbia was, I, I felt very, I felt like people respected me and I felt like I got a lot of good, good mentoring, but it also was not this sort of, you know, kind and gentle place. I really had to sort of fight my way through, but fortunately it all worked out. Cool. I want to turn to political economy as a field. It's one of these blended fields that I find fascinating because you're putting together two strong disciplines that have their own cultures. I'm interested in how you think about that, whether the field has changed over time. Are there conflicts in the field, kind of theoretical debates and, and method debates that are just ongoing? Or tell us about that as a field and its evolution. Well, I would say if you ask most people about about my work, uh, they would probably classify me as you know heterodox, right? Uh, somebody who's who tends to push the boundaries a lot, who tends to not be satisfied with sort of conventional wisdom on things. Quite some time ago, I wrote a piece actually called something like of intellectual monocultures and the study of international political economy, where I took the field to task actually for mimicking sort of classical economics and the sort of orthodox ways of thinking about how markets work and just sort of overlaying politics on top of that and not actually grappling with the notion that power dynamics are quite different from the dynamics you would find in a market, right? Which we traditionally think of as being driven by, by profit, by wealth motivations, by efficiency motivations, and so on. And that if we really wanted to understand how markets work, we always need to see them as structured fundamentally by underlying, underlying power dynamics. So there's this very, very important insight that I think political science has to bring to the study of markets. But I would argue a lot of my colleagues tended to perhaps adhere too closely to a more sort of orthodox, rational, strategic view of how markets work. Now, the other thing that I've done in my career, so it wasn't enough just to bring in power and politics. I'm also fascinated by culture and social relationships and how those things matter. So I also think to fully grasp how markets work, you also have to think about how they're structured by social relationship and structured by culture. That again, economists tend to think of markets as this abstracted, universally operating set of dynamics. That you can go to Japan, you can go to Africa, you can go to Michigan, and in every single place, people are going to be performing markets in exactly the same way, because there are these underlying logics. I would argue, and a lot of people who, who work in my field, that that's not right at all. That in fact, markets unfold in dramatically different ways. That capitalism itself is not one thing, but is a bunch of different things, right? That we have what uh, political scientists have called varieties of capitalism at work. And so we need to understand markets are made of human beings. 
And therefore they are intrinsically social and they are intrinsically imbued with power relationships, which good political scientists know occur in every setting. Mm -hmm. So I think my own uh, scholarship as a political economist absolutely has that intertwining that you talk about of these two very strong disciplines. But I also try very hard to bring in the discipline that you come from, sociology. So it's a bit of a trifecta uh, yeah. actually going on. Um, let's call it a holy trinity. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, so when at, at the annual conferences, are there strong debate? Is it a field in turmoil and kind of always in turmoil? And that's why you love it? That's a great, that's a really great question. I would say the field has opened up in remarkable and really encouraging ways. Then in fact, when I was getting trained uh, in the 1990s, and in fact, my own thesis advisor was a very orthodox sort of rational choice, you know, theorist whose work I respect a lot, but my work is dramatically different from hers. And kudos to her for actually mentoring me you know, not somebody who's going to carry on her tradition, but who's starting a new tradition. I would say actually in the 1990s and 2000s, it was actually quite boring, the field of international political economy, right? Which is sort of a, a related subset of political economy, right? We think about global markets. And then there was this whole, you know, global financial crisis, which blew everything up. And I think which opened up a bit of a door for younger scholars in particular to start thinking about markets, not as these sort of efficiency maximizing things which produce, you know, these, these very stable outcomes because you have these all-knowing actors within them carrying out their, their market activities. Um, and so in the, in the sort of teens, I would say there's been a really nice explosion of much more interesting work that has gone in a lot of different directions. And you probably know you know, I sort of watch out of the corner of my eye what the discipline of economics is doing. And there's also been a really interesting kind of explosion of discussion in economics about how much of the conventional assumptions that the high status econ world has labored under have also started to, to be sort of punctured and, and contested. So I think it's a really, really exciting time to be involved in thinking about global markets and, and the politics of global markets. It certainly seems that way because the, uh, it, it's one of those moments in history where the conventional thinking was obviously false. And so those are wonderful moments that uh, you have to scramble for, for new, new things. Let me take you back, um, when you, so you finish your dissertation I'm interested in that first appointment you had when, when you had to begin to juggle teaching and research and, and service. So what, what are your memories of those moments? And what do you know now that you'd like to tell the younger Kate about how to cope with the, juggling those three balls all the time? Well, frankly, I look back on those early years and I, I, I'm astonished that somehow I got through it all, to be honest, because I was sort of in my 30s, because I'd, you know, taken all these various detours before I got my PhD. So I was sort of in my early 30s when I had my first teaching job. And of course, the biological clock was ticking, right? And so I knew I had to think if I was going to have children, it was going to have to happen simultaneous to the tenure clock. And I was at that small liberal arts college in central New Jersey, Princeton University, which, you know, had 
an astonishingly bad record of tenuring faculty in my field. There had been one person since 1966 tenured in my field in national relations. So I was sort of thinking about, you know, I'm probably going to need to get another job. You know, I, I shouldn't count on tenure here. At the same time as I was thinking about having kids. And actually, when I began at Princeton, they had no parental leave. So I had my, I don't know if you've heard this story, Bob, I've told this story many times, but I had my first kid thanks to the German Marshall Fund, which is not a good thing to use your academic fellowship to have a child, but that's what I did, right? And so kid number one in 1996, and it made me so angry and I knew I probably wasn't gonna stick around and get tenure. So I basically did whatever I want as an assistant professor. Although I think I've sort of always done whatever I wanted anyway, actually, to be honest. But I went to the dean of the faculty and I said, we have to have paid parental leave because this is ridiculous. Yale and Harvard had already gone forward. So I was super lucky. So I was pushing on an open door. I was like, faculty recruitment, we need to do this. And so for kid number two, I actually had the first paid parental leave at, at Princeton. So hooray for that in 1999, I believe that was, right? I would say, you know, and, and I was thrilled when I came to Georgetown, it already had paid leave and so on. I was sort of beyond that point in my life, but I've, I've always been so grateful for Georgetown's commitment to, you know, the whole person, cura personalis, right? That, that in fact, you know, there's a sense you don't have to hide that you have a family. You don't have to hide that you have these other parts of your life that contribute to your dignity as a whole person and contribute to you being a better scholar and teacher. But I would say the most important thing that I think young faculty should remember, and I think it's very important, is to just be very stubborn and mulish and just sort of, you know, go forward and think about what is really important to you and, and to do what, what your own kind of intellect and your own commitments say is important in terms of your scholarship. Obviously, you need to listen to your colleagues. They have good advice. Senior colleagues, you know, will tell you a lot of good things that you may not be thinking about in terms of being strategic in sensible ways. But at the end of the day, I think I'm so grateful that to me, what we do is such a luxury and it's so meaningful. I was watching the convocation on the weekend and I enjoyed it so much and it touched me so very deeply, um, particularly President DeJoya's speech and, and my colleague Mark Howard's speech, because it really reminded me of, of how incredibly lucky we are. And so I think you know, as much as one can turn down all the noise and sort of tune out all the naysayers, and there will be a lot of people around you who are, you know, super worried about everything that's going on. But I think, you know, focusing really on, on our work, on our teaching, and on the things that illuminate us that really, you know, provide this sort of endless source of, I think in the convocation, I'm not sure who it was that talked about, I think it was something like joyous, restlessness. I'm not sure who said that. I think it might, do you know what I'm talking about? I think it was President DeJoya. And I, I think that's what, you know, we have to kind of focus on and, and try to sort of get rid of all the other stuff as much as possible. Fascinating. Let's, let's talk about your life as a instructor, a teacher, as well as a researcher. And ha have you found ways to make those synergistic, that they speak to one another in your own mind and they energize you back and forth and, and tell us a bit about those moments and how you've tried to maximize them, I guess. Well, I think we're extraordinarily lucky, right? At Georgetown, our students are amazing. 
to me, you know, there's a seamless interface between my own research and my teaching because the students provoke me and challenge me and, you know, make me think more and better about things. Um, and so I guess I, I approach teaching and research in a very similar way of how can I figure out how the world works? How can I figure out how politics works? How can I do this in a collaborative way? In a classroom, it's because I have students either virtually or physically right there. In my own writing, I think I have really privileged the notion of being clear and writing in ways that are accessible. When I give presentations to academic conferences and at seminars and so on, again, I think about them less as presentations. I think about them more as in fact, communicating and teaching to my own colleagues, people at my own level, right? So to me, these are not things that are in any way different, right? I've really appreciated that. You know, I think that not in every setting would I be able to, to do that so seamlessly, but for me, those things all dovetail into each other. I should say one other thing that's sort of a practical tip for maybe colleagues is my last book, The Politics of Everyday Europe, started out as a seminar. So I taught it for about five years before I wrote the book, thinking through the ideas, thinking through, you know, reading the literatures that I needed to read in order to, to figure out this question about what legitimates and what underpins the European Union as a new emergent innovative political form. And so I structured the class to sort of look throughout history at sort of the rise of the modern state and sort of, well, you know, those were new too at one point. How did, how did the modern state legitimize itself? And so the students and I read together a whole bunch of literatures that ended up being a crucial foundation for my scholarly work. Yeah, that's great. I had a, a wonderful experience uh, myself like that where, where we were, the classes were working through basically Jack draft chapters at, at different points in the class and they made that book so much better because they're so honest about when you're not communicating very well so that's that's interesting you have in your life taken on various administrative roles it's a, a rare event your leadership in the matara center your your vice dean position so tell me how you thought through why did you do that uh, it's certainly something that faculty can avoid if they don't want to do it. But so why did you choose to take on those roles? So ultimately, I choose to take on those roles, I would say, maybe slightly different kind of dynamics that were Mortara was dead easy, right? Because you're leading up a research institute and for somebody who absolutely adores doing research and writing. There's nothing better than sort of leading up a research institute where you can facilitate research and seed research across the campus, right? So I did that with faculty member, but I also started the Mortara Undergraduate Research Fellow Program, the MRFs, um, which was a fantastic way to pair early year undergrads with a faculty mentor to help them do their research. And then eventually by their senior year, the MRFs would actually be doing their own research, right? So it's sort of creating that culture of research across the campus, based in SFS, but certainly across the campus. So it was fantastic and it was dead easy. I will say being a vice dean is a little harder, right? Because there you're really dealing with much more kind of administrative bureaucratic things. You're dealing much more with sort of the puzzle pieces of the university, 
of the different aspects of the different types of deans and things like that. And that I really did because I did feel like SFS was at a moment where I could make a difference. You know, I think for somebody like me who, you know, I would say my heart is really in research and teaching. It's not in administration. I know that will break your heart, Bob, but that's <laughs> sadly the way, the way it goes. And that's important to know, right? It's important to know what sparks joy and that's what sparks joy. But I would say that I am acutely aware that I can only do those things if the system is working and if you know the machinery is running. And I understand that at times one has to step forward and take responsibility for that. And so, you know, I was an interim dean. Uh, dean Joel Hellman was very, very kind. He offered me to do it for one year, and I did. And I think I was able to kind of come in and make some changes and do some good. And I will absolutely continue to look out for opportunities where I really feel like I can make a difference and I can do it in ways that are going to make sure that I can continue to, to do my research and teaching. Right now, I'm sitting on the University Committee on Rank and Tenure, which is also a, a really big responsibility. But again, I feel like that's something where, you know, I'm making a big difference. It's crucially important to the university as a whole. And so I certainly feel like that is time very, very well spent. So I think, you know, the key is to figure out what fits, what, you know, who you really are and what you really need to do and where you can make a difference. And that's going to be different for everyone. But I would argue that, you know, every person on the campus, every faculty member probably has a place where those sort of efforts can make a difference and be important. Maybe we should end with just a bit about what you're working on now. So what's the most exciting thing you're doing now? What, what, what do you find yourself thinking about at odd moments, driving in a car or so on? So what's the puzzle you're working on? Well, actually, I, I think this follows on very well from our discussion about the political economy, sort of the nature of the discussions around political economy and global political economy. I would say the most exciting thing right now is this grant that Professor Abe Newman and I are, are administrating right now and creating. And this is a proposal that we sort of have been kicking around for a few years around how can we think about institutionalizing this new study of and reimagined study of global political economy that actually becomes much more interdisciplinary, that draws on all kinds of arenas of knowledge that have not necessarily been put at the center of the study of, of global markets. For example, things like digital technology. The, the world we live in today is so different from 40 or 50 years ago. And that has not been adequately captured, I would argue, in the scholarship. Things like the role of identity and culture that I've talked about. Right. So, for example, Professor Newman and I are running this this year a whole series of the Global Political Economy Project and race, where we're going to be bringing in a lot of fascinating researchers who are talking about race as a variable in international political economy, something that really had not been looked at adequately. And I think we all are starting to understand is crucially and systemically important. Climate change. The environment, right? Again, something that was sort of a, a negative externality of how markets work. We think we need to put that at the center of our study of markets. And in fact, it's something intrinsic to the way markets work and that a, a post-carbon future is going to be dramatically different in terms of the global, global political economy. 
So we've really tried to create an infrastructure for students and faculty to study those things and also communicate them to the broader public to kind of, you know, make sure that the discourse around these policies is, is better. So we're doing a bunch of programming and stuff. And that's on the programmatic side. I, I would say in sort of maybe more on the substantive side, I'm going to continue my fascination with the European Union and trying to figure out what the heck it is and, and sort of what it means. And if the whole thing is, in fact, going to all fall apart, or whether it's created a certain stability in terms of creating a political community that can hang together despite the endless series of crises that have confronted it. So I'm, con I'm continuing to do work and uh, the pandemic and COVID-19 has of course created even more drama for the European Union, which interestingly, it's responded to in ways that have deepened cooperation across the nation states of Europe, uh, not lessened it. So I will continue that stream of work as well. I can understand why you've over years kept these interests and your passion for pursuing them. So, so I, it's clear why you continue to be excited about your work. And I thank you so much for sharing your interests with us on this little podcast. Thank you, Professor McNamara. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Bob.